Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in History. Uh, this is Marcus Grodi, your co-host for this program. I'm joined every week by Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. Hello, Monsignor Steenson. Hello there, Marcus. Hi. It's great to be with you. And, you know, my only regret is that we're separated. Well, at least I should be thankful that we at least can talk, but we are separated by this distance. And uh, we're going to jump into chapter, we're in uh, I will say, and if you're joining us for the first time, I want you to to get out of here. What I want you to do is go back to the first episode and start from there, right, Monsignor? I mean, we we, we we've built so much over all this that I think we really want you to start at the beginning. Right. It's all about works in this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Be careful. But uh, we're working no, our way through. No grace here, yeah. <laughs> we're working our way through against heresies by Irenaeus, and and uh, you know, Monsignor, I I have personally found this study so absolutely eye-opening and fascinating in many ways, and uh, it, it in some ways it it has brought controversies into my life that I never expected, but I have found it just absolutely wonderful and. To be honest with you, what I can't wait to do when we finish this is I'm going all the way to the beginning and reading it over again. Wow. Well the, well, the reason is that, you know, I'd read it before, and uh, yeah. the reason, I, of course, I invited you in to do this was because of your patristic background, and I don't have that, but but in reading it as detailed as we've done, it, it's like I'm now getting to the point where maybe I'm a little bit prepared for us actually to begin a study of Irenaeus. Yeah. <laughs> after we've studied it, because as I go back to the beginning, I'm finding things that he said over and over and over again that I didn't appreciate when we were doing it earlier. And I'm going to begin with that in a moment uh, uh, to show you that, uh, at least how it is for me. But what we're doing, um, friends, in our program today is we're in book five and we're going to begin on page 492 of Keeble's translation. We're in book five, chapter 18. And we're essentially going to start with section two, but we're going to actually begin with the last paragraph of section one. And we're going to go through chapter 20. Chapter 21, he begins a long section about the battle of the Lord and that we have with the devil and then the Antichrist, and then he'll move on into talking about the end times. But the section we're looking at today deals with three topics. The Trinity, Mary, and the Church. And... <clears throat> the, 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 one of the reasons I you know, jokingly said, if you're watching us, you're starting here, stop, go back, is because um, 
the danger of just jumping in now as if this is the first time we talked about any of these things is we're, we're missing the fact that he, in fact, has one underlying, uh, if you will, foundation of thought that he's always dipping into. And often he's repeating himself many, many times. On these, but not necessarily on the same details of these three things, but 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 he does, and it, it builds on everything he said, right, right Monsignor? I mean, he's mm-hmm. it's a constant. It's not a systematic thing where once we get to chapter fifty-seven point two, we can t- we're talking about Mary for the first time. No, 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 no. He's been using it in his argument. All same thing with the church. So what we'd like to do today is a little different than we've done in the past, and and uh, I'm hoping we can get this in in the – we always try and do shorter than an hour, but I think I'm the one that gabs too much as it makes it stretch out. But <clears throat> is we're actually going to go through this section line by line. I'm going to pretty much read everything, and I'll be the, 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 the servant and read, Monsignor, and then what I want you to do is you're there to – to fill in the reflections, if you will. All right? Okay. Um, so where we're going to begin is in the middle of page 492. And we covered this last week at, when we ended that section, but I wanted to begin there because I think it, it really formed the foundation of what we were going to say. Here's what, he, here's what Aaron is. Here's how he begins. He says, Wherefore, since these things are all impossible and admit of no proof, now, let's pause there. He's talking about the teachings of the Gnostics, right, Monsignor? That's what he means That's by right. about yeah. all, all the things they've been saying that he's been covering in now four and a half books. He said, this stuff is hooey. I think that's the original Greek word, is that this stuff is hooey. It's impossible. and admits of no proof. He's been, and he says, that alone is true which the church proclaims. That it was his own creation, subsisting by the power and skill and wisdom of God, which became the vehicle of him, which creation, while it is invisibly sustained by the Father, doth, on the other hand, visibly sustain his word. And this is the word. Now, Monsignor, in that short paragraph, there is so much. There is so much. Uh, uh, Marcus, you know what? I was thinking about the one before, the paragraph before, um, mm-hmm. Irenaeus assumes, he, he basically assumes, he admits that the Gnostics um, have a place for Christ on the cross because they, they talk about Christ on the cross. But his point um, is, well, who do you think Jesus was praying to on the cross? And by what means was he able to pray? You know, it was his body, which was part of the creation. Um, and, um, and he prayed, he prayed to his father who created this whole thing, you know, and, and basically I thought that was a really interesting argument Irenaeus makes that um, to the Gnostics, you're, you, you talk about Christ on the cross, but it's nonsense because who is this guy and who is he relating to? Who is he praying to? Again, one of the reasons I believe, I, I really enjoyed so much reading Irenaeus 
is because on the one hand, many of you who hear the things that we take from Irenaeus, you might say on the one hand, well, that's what we all believe today. What's the big deal? And, and we don't appreciate the, the battle he's fighting at the time he's writing. Yeah. That is eventually a battle the devil was using to destroy. He's going to talk about that next week's section of the, the devil, the battle with the devil, and what the devil was using to, to counterfeit the gospel, to misuse scripture, to come up with all kinds of alternatives to get away from the truth and to distract, distract us from that and the danger of that. And so on the one hand, we're hearing things that the battles were won. And so now we take some things for granted. On the other hand, though, there are some things that he gets at that were commonly assumed then, but because of the battles that were fought in the next 2,000 years are not universally agreed to. And a good example that goes along a little bit with what you were saying, Monsignor, there's a place when he's arguing with those Gnostics that want to claim that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. Later they were called Docetists. But at the time, I don't think they'd gotten that name yet. But they were, you know, they, they, it wasn't really Jesus in the flesh. Remember we talked about that? The, mm -hmm. the flesh can't go to heaven, so Jesus couldn't have been in the flesh. And his argument is, if you guys want to argue that, then that undercuts the Eucharist. Well, yeah. the point of that is he's able to write to his audience. They all accept the reality of the Eucharist. That's not in question. But if you don't believe he came in the flesh, then you, you undercut the Eucharist. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So, but, so how do you weed through all these things? And his point, which I wanted to say here is, he makes this statement, that that alone is true which the church proclaims. Now, the context is this issue, as you said, with the crucifixion and creation and all that. But I wanted to begin there because, in essence, that's where he ends this section. Because he will say, as we get to it, this need to fly to the church. And, and that we will be cast out of the paradise of life into which the Lord bringeth those who obey his instructions. That's where we're going to end. So the question is, how do I know whether or not I am obeying his instructions? Because apart from the church, it's easy for us to decide, eh, you know, that part of the gospel I really don't like. This part I like. I'll go with that. But this part, eh, it's, it's too challenging, too demanding. So that's not important. But this, okay. And so how do you know, though, if, if you're following the Lord faithfully? And he says, that alone is true, which the church proclaims. Now, before we move on, the question is, well, what does he mean by the church? Does he mean the church the way we think of it now in the 21st century? And I'm going to give you a list of, pl of places throughout that I would recommend if you're wondering, what does he mean by the church? A list of sections to go back. And I'm going to say them, and you might want to pause and write them down. I'm just going to rattle off a bunch of places that, that's why I said, don't just start here. You start from the beginning. So here's my list. Book one 
chapter 10, sections 1 and 2. I'm going to rattle these off, and then uh, later, we're not going to discuss them today, but i just giving these to you to go through and, and, and with a cup of coffee or your, or your beverage of choice to reflect on. Book 2, chapter 9, section 1. Book 2, section 30, section, oh, chapter 30, section 9. Book 3, the prologue all the way through chapter 5, verse, or er, section 1. Book 3, chapter 11, section 8. Book 3, section 12, uh, chapter 12, Section 5b, in other words, kind of the second half of that. Book 3, chapter 12, section 7c, the end of that section. Book 3, chapter 14, section 1. Book 4, chapter 8, section 2b. Book 4, section, or chapter 17, section 5 through chapter 18, section 2. Book 4, chapter 33, section 7 and following. It goes for a couple sections. And then chapter 5, the prologue. Now, if you want to understand what he means by the church... Look look at all these sections, and, and they really give you an idea of, of Irenaeus, at the time, the end of the second century, how Irenaeus understood why you need the church. And it's because given all the voices, the only way you can know what is true is the church. That's it. And it isn't so much in my mind, you might disagree with me, Monsignor, it isn't so much in mind that he's thinking about the church and its institution. And it's not that he's not thinking of that, but that isn't the most important thing. The reason we're saved through unity with the church is not because we're connected to the Bishop of Rome or the, it's because we're connected to the apostolic deposit of faith. That that's salvation, that's being in union with Christ through through the the message of the gospel that He gave to the apostles, that was then handed on to their successors, and that's why we are, as He said, the, if, if you want to be sure of all the successions of bishops that there are out there, He said, let me pick the one that's of that's of that I can tell you everyone needs to agree with, and that's Rome, because why? Because that's where the two apostles, Peter and Paul, were. But the focus is on the truth. That's why he says the pillar and bulwark of the church is the gospel, the truth. Now, Monsignor, I'll give you a chance to respond to that. My my goal that is not downplaying the authority of the church as much as really asking the question, why? Why the church? And I would see that John Paul II affirms that in the very first statement of the Catechism. The very first statement of the Catechism, which is guarding the deposit. Guarding the deposit is the reason for the church. 
Would you would you agree with that, my friend? I I probably want to put it differently personally. Okay. All right. Um, you know, of course, of course, it's all about the truth. I mean that because um, the the Lord and head of the church is the truth. He is the Word. So that's a, but how do we have access to it through, well, you know, think about, he took human form, he became man so that we can, we can see what was invisible. Um, and I think, I think Irenaeus doesn't have any place for what sometimes would later be called the doctrine of the invisible church. Yeah, and 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 I wasn't. Uh, no, I know you weren't, but I, I just wanted to make that, that point. Right. I think that right. that um, that he seems to come back at the um, at the end of all of this stuff. His thing is that the church actually exists. Right. It's it's not some ethereal concept. Right. It it actually exists, and it exists in an institutional way, um, um, and. Yeah, it, you know he he keeps bringing us back to those that second generation of bishops or elders. You know, they were real people. My only clarification is that he keeps coming back to them because they are guardians of the apostolic deposit of faith. That's that's why. And right, we can trust that bishop. Just being a bishop isn't sufficient unless they're holding to the apostolic deposit because they can be a successor mm-hmm. and ordained a successor. But if they don't hold to the truth, we see in the early church, they can lo- they lose their bishopric. That's right. Yeah. It wasn't until later it developed this idea that once ordained, you're always a bishop, even if you're totally defrocked. We have one of those today floating around still, I think, right? Yeah, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. Unfortunately. So in other words, yeah. uh, uh, today a bishop who totally rejects the apostolic deposit of faith remains a bishop. He may not be in position of authority, but he's a, okay. That wasn't true at this point in time because we know through reading Eusebius that there were bishops who were removed completely. Why? Because they didn't hold to the apostolic deposit of faith. And, and my only point I'm playing is that there's this this issue of here is that there's a there's a unity here. We got to remember that the church is the church when she's united to the apostolic deposit of faith. If she departs from it, yeah, then that's you know, what, Marcus. I I remember somebody told me once um, a cardinal um, mentioned to me once that. One of the blessings about why the church—that one of the blessings of the church not basically saying you're not a, you're no longer a bishop or you're no longer a priest—is basically the church is is preserving the case that will be laid against that person at the judgment because the punishment is going to be far more severe because he was a bishop. Or he was a priest. Yeah, I was fascinated with that argument. <laughs> Actually, I, I agree with that completely. I yeah. think yeah. when I think of the church declaring 
in the Vatican Council that the fullness of the church established by Christ subsists in the Catholic Church. Um, what I take that to also mean is that at the end of time, the church that will be held most accountable for problems in Christianity will be the Catholic Church. Yes. You know, culpable, culpability, culpability. Yeah. Uh, we got to be careful of always pointing our fingers out there. Those people, you know, who, you know, those renegade reformers out there. When, you know, throughout the history of the church, we see popes like Adrian. I think it's Adrian the Second after the Reformation. He doesn't blame Luther. He says it was us. It was us, you know, and uh, mm -hmm. and the accountability is there is because it was the church. As you said, the, the cardinal. The, the, okay, that's right. Well, we're getting a little far afield here. I, I wanted to give you all those those uh, references because we wouldn't have time for them. But it makes for a fascinating study to see all the different places that he talks. And and the bottom line of it is, and Father, I mean, uh, the, yeah, he Irenaeus nowhere posits any idea of an invisible church, it's it's in the successors who have been given to deposit to preserve yeah. and protect. And that's what they're to do. And that's the church. That's the church. Um, um, actually, I think that the fact that he has to point in here that everybody needs to be in union with Rome he has an, a, a kind of an assumption that not every church is at the time, but it needs to be. Uh, because you can drift and end up like these Gnostics. And we're gonna get into that if we get there, if I don't keep gabbing, mm. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, let's go. We're gonna move into section two, where he says, for the Father underlying both the creation and the Word, and the Word upholden of the Father impart the Spirit unto all at the Father's good pleasure, to some in the way of creation, which sort of thing is made, to others in the way of adoption, which kind is of God. And this is birth. I guess we pause there a little bit, Monsignor. Uh, you know, I'm reminded as I start reading this, reminds me, Irenaeus is, be is before Nicaea. So he's he's... He's dealing with descriptions of the Trinity. It, he doesn't, it doesn't seem to me that he's feeling any nervousness yet about if he doesn't say it quite right, he's going to get in trouble. That's going to come in a hundred years from here. Right. That's true. Yeah. He's going to be one of the early ones to work out. Marcus, what I heard in those first couple of sentences is, um, is, is Irenaeus talking about how it is that the image of God is implanted on man. And his basic point is that there are two levels. Um, he, we remember that in earlier parts of Against Heresies too. The image of God is imperfectly in um, the human person um, according to nature. It's not perfect. It, it, that requires the Holy Spirit. And so, so that 
there's basically these two levels of bearing the image of God. One is, um, one is uh, by way of creation. Um, the other is by way of adoption or the new birth. Um, and so again, you know, going back to how um, if, if we are truly and faithfully to have the image of God, we need, um, we need the presence of the Holy Spirit to make that happen. You know, it, yeah. it, it's like he ends the section with that very reference, the very end of chapter 20. Um, he says, his instruction gathering us into himself all things which are in heaven and which are on earth. Now the things in heaven are spiritual things, but the things in earth is the dispensation relating to man. These accordingly he hath gathered un up unto himself, uniting man to spirit and placing spirit in man. He became himself the head of the spirit, giving at the same time the spirit to be the head of man. For through him we have seen and heard and speak. Again, you have this idea of the spirit being given. That's right. And, we, and again, we think we have been, it has been drummed into our heads through our education that there are three parts to the human person, body, soul, and spirit. Um, for Irenaeus, the natural man has two parts, a body and a soul. And the spirit has to be, that. that's something that, remember, he has to be educated. Yeah. <laughs> and then he falls away. And, and that, then um, Christ comes and recapitulates. And by the gift of the Holy Spirit, that, uh, that's the spirit is where the true image of God is to be found in the, in the redeemed person. We become adopted. That's it. Yeah. Through that. And that, that's the part you're, that you're yeah. doing here. We, we become reborn. Yeah. This is the birth. This is the adoption as above to the, the lower level that hasn't received the spirit yet. Right. That's the part we just that's right. looked at. Yeah. And then he goes, again, he's talking about the Father and the Word and the Spirit. Then he goes on, and this is shown forth the one God and Father, who is above all and through all and in all. Above all, first in the Father, and he is the head of Christ. Then through all is the Word, and he is the head of the church. And in us all, again, is the Spirit. And he is the living water which the Lord imparts to all that rightly believe in him and love him and know that there is one Father who is above all and through all and in all. Now, Monsignor, okay, there's that thing about the Spirit being given. And I love it. He says, and he's quoting Paul, through all, in all, uh, mm -hmm. above all, through all, and in all. But he says there's one God and Father. And in that phrase, one God and Father, it's as if that's his phrase for the Trinity. That's right. It's as if that is his phrase for the Trinity. I wish I knew what the Greek was for that. And then he says that, that that one, the one God and Father, have three parts, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. And the Father is the head of Christ. Above all is the Father. Through all is the Word, our Lord Jesus, who's head of the church. And then he doesn't just say in all. It isn't just above all, 
through all, and in all. It's in us all. Why us? Because he's saying, because we've received the Spirit. The you know, he makes that point. Yeah, no, that's right. And um, you, I, you pointed out something um, at the very beginning of that sentence, um, the one God and Father. And then, and then um, we meet up with Father again. And it seems a little confusing, doesn't it? Yep. To, um, I, I want to just tell you, I was reading um, during uh, Holy Week the, the um, Paschal homily of Melito of Sardis, who was writing about the same time. Yep. And Melito was using pretty much the same language about how Christ um, had Christ in Christ was the father. And so it seems like these early uh, or these late second century theologians were using father in, in two distinct ways. One is God and father, who is the whole Trinity, and then father in, in the specific person. And basically that that was just the way that they were talking in the third, in the second century. Eventually, you know, by the third century, that gets clarified a little bit more. But yeah, I was fascinated with that. Um, I'm not, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not, I'm reading J.D. Kelly right now in, in his book on the, I forget the title of it, The Early Christian Doctrines, but uh, maybe right. he deals with that. I'm going to look forward to see if he, if he discusses that at all. But maybe the very point is that this phrase which had developed God and Father, mm -hmm. as kind of describing God in his totality, and then the expression of it as Father, Son, and Spirit became such a conundrum because it could be modalism, right? Exactly. That was the danger. Well, that was the big danger. And so that's why you needed something in Tertullian, I think. We don't know if he's the one that came up with it. He's the first written evidence of the term Trinity, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. I think, I think was, so. Okay. Yeah. And then, of course, that was stained when Tertullian decided to do his own thing. But uh, um, so, but we, we see here, you know, I guess in some ways what we're saying is that at the present time, amongst all these people, except for the Gnostics, amongst Christians, this issue of trying to define the Trinity in, in a more clarified way isn't a problem yet. They understand what they're saying. And he's basically expressed it here. And we see... You know, also, I want... It's just, it popped into my head again, too. We sometimes call um, Irenaeus an, um, an exemplar of the economic model of the Trinity, um, which is that the Trinity becomes discernible because of God's action in the world and in us. Otherwise, God would uh, God would simply be God. He would simply be God and Father. But um, but as Irenaeus and others of his time explain how God is at work in the in the process of saving the world, we see a Trinitarian pattern to that. Um, so that's where the idea of the economic trinity comes. We see it in the way that God works. I'm reminded of 
but you would know these better than me, statements by Ignatius of Antioch that talk about God as the head of Christ and Christ as the head of the church, mm -hmm. right? It wasn't there that parallel between as God is the head of Christ, so is the bishop the head of the, the yeah. priests. And, you know, so this understanding of this relationship between father yeah, the, as the head. Because the bishop represents the father in the church. The priests represent the spirit and the deacons represent Christ yeah. because of the servant nature of that, you know, yeah. Okay. Um, okay, now <clears throat> we're at the top of 493, and what we see is, uh, in general, which this next section all the way through section 3, the end of chapter 18, is basically Irenaeus' reflection on John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. I mean, it's really cool. I mean, that's what this that's is. That's right, yeah. It's like a Bible study right. <laughs> of John 1. I mean, it really is, you know. And, and what underlies that, again, the assumption of this is that he accepts the gospel of John as inspired scripture equivalent to the Old Testament mm -hmm. scriptures. This is developed at this point. Um. So let me, if I will, I'll read there, Monsignor. I'm going to read a big chunk here, and then uh, you jump in and, and reflect here. Witnesses born to this by John, also the Lord's disciple, saying in his gospel as follows, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made. Afterwards of the same word, he saith, he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become sons of God, to them which believe in his name. And again, meaning his economy as man, he saith, and the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. And again he inserted, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Evidently declaring to such as we have, in other words, who have ears, that there is one God the Father over all, and one Lord, one word of God, which is through all, by whom all things were made, and that this world is his very own, and made by him at his Father's will, and not by angels neither in the way of revolt and decay and ignorance, nor by I know not what virtue of prunions. Prunicus. Prunicus, I couldn't read here. Prunicus, yeah. whom some also call mother, nor by some other world maker, not knowing the father. It's, it's, yeah, he's, he's making fun of them there. <laughs> Some of those Gnostics, I suppose it would be the Valentinians, um, the, the, you know, the mother of the world was, I, I think that's the first time I've come across the word pruticus. Yeah. But <laughs> they did have a mother because Yahweh had to have a, a wife. Okay. And, um, yeah, it was, he's making fun of it. And I love at the very beginning of, of that last part of it where you said, um, um, evidently declaring to such as will hear that is 
yeah. those who have ears. I mean, clearly, can't you just see he's just <laughs> making fun of them here? Again, he's been, it's built on this long argument that he's only just touching back to, and every once in a while he's, he's, he's turning the knife. Um, but again, uh, number one, this is based on, on the apostle of our Lord who converted Polycarp, who influenced Irenaeus. So he's, yeah. he, he's going back. He's only two generations away from the apostle himself, and he's quoting from him, taking the, the gospel of John um, as inspired and, and authoritative. But he's making that emphasis on there is one God the Father over all and one word of God which is through all, by whom all things were made. And, yeah, yeah, and I think it's this is a great opportunity just to make the point that John, that prologue of John's gospel uh, was extremely important uh, for these early theologians. Um, they, I mean, this is where the doctrine of the Trinity really gets worked out um, uh, on their reflections of, of what, what St. John was writing in those first verses of the gospel. And it's cool. I just thought it was neat the way that he connected John to Paul in Ephesians chapter four here. Um, that that is really, yeah. yeah. You know, one thing I was going to say again yeah. when we have our English translation, we keep seeing the word, the word, the word. It would be better if he could have left it in the Greek to word use the word logos, logos, which is the word that the Gnostics were using from their philosophy. And so that's why at the end of section one, he says, remember he said that which can, creation which it is invisibly sustained by the Father doth on the other hand visibly sustain his word, and this is the Logos. That's He's right. making that point. And this is yeah. the Logos. It's as if he turns from his thing and looks at him, guys, hey guys, this is the Logos that you guys are out there coming up with all kinds of explanations. This is the Logos. And, that, and then he, that's why he goes right to John, which is yeah. John's whole statement about the Logos. The Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what he's trying to tell the Gnostics. And then section three, for the maker of the world indeed is the word of God, the Logos of God. And this is our Lord who in the last times was made man existing in this world, who invisib invisibly contains all things that were made and is established in the whole creation as being God's logos, governing and disposing all things, and therefore into his own he came invisibly and was made flesh and hung upon the tree that he might sum up all things unto his son, himself. Let me pause there for a moment. Who in the last times, you know, he's going to talk later about his view of the last times, but to me this emphasizes this idea of he's come in the end of salvation history. Mm-hmm. 
He's come at the end of salvation history. We are in the last time. Augustine would say that we're in the last times. You know, the emphasis that it's not yet to come yet. The last times yeah. are, are they're here. We're in it. And he, he, who in the last times was made man. So there's that emphasis on the reality of his incarnation. I did note in a footnote on the side, Monsignor, that it looks like somebody had visibly instead of invisibly. Did you notice that? I wonder if you could say oh, more. Oh, yes, uh -huh, yeah. There, into his own he came visibly. and Well, I mean, I suppose he initially started invisibly, and then when he was born of the Virgin Mary, he became visible. I suppose that's what, you know, the intention was. Now, is that phrase that he might sum up all into himself? That, that is the heart of Irenaeus' understanding of salvation, um, the doctrine of recapitulation, um, the summing up. And, and basically, it, it, it means um, the recreation of the original creation which had fallen. And it lost its luster, if you will, and is now made perfect in him. A new chance. New chance. Okay. And, you know, um, have we come across where, you know, where, you know, Paul talked about how the world groans oh. in expectation of... Um, That's Romans, that Rome, Romans 8. Romans. Romans 8, I can see, uh, well, we must have. I don't have. know if we've come across that lately, but, um, but you know, that, that's another, that, I mean, that the whole of creation is waiting for this to happen. Well, that, that passage in Romans 8 is, I can look it up here, the um, Baba Father, so in the creation of subject to humility, the, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of man, for the creation was subject to fidelity not of its own will, but by the will of him who it, because the creation itself will be set free to decay and obtain. We know that the whole creation has been groaning. So that's Romans 8.22, and 8.22, that's why I love this particular translation of, because it has a great index, 8.22, we go to 821, 5, we're not there yet. Okay. I can't read. 524, 538, so we're going to get there. Ah, okay, that's good, okay. So it's coming. Yeah, well, I just, I yep. get it, I just, I under, underline, whenever we come across that expression that, um, that the Logos sums up all into himself, that is this doctrine of recapitulation. Okay. He has he he come to refashion a creation that had been di dis distorted by sin. Okay. Um, let's go on. And his own, even man, received him not, as Moses declared the same among the people. And the life shall be hanging before thine eyes, and thou wilt not believe thine own life. I love Arenaeus' grasp of Scripture. Just... Just amazes me. Whoso then receiveth not him, 
receiveth not life. But as many as receiveth him to them gave he power to become sons of God. For it is he who hath power over all from the Father, as being the Logos of God and true man, with invisible things, with invisible beings holding reasonable communion and appointing them a law after an intellectual fashion, all and each to abide in their own order, while over things visible and human he reigns openly and bringeth upon all meetly his just judgment. As David also plainly intimated, saith, Our God will come openly and will not keep silence. Then also he declared a judgment which he is bringing upon us, saying, A fire shall burn in his sight, and around him a mighty tempest. He shall summon the heaven from above and the earth to discern his people. Now, uh, back a little bit, he emphasizes the incarnation here and as being the word of God and true man, so the logos of God and true man. And then he has these two areas over which he has communion and authority, the invisible and the visible. And the, I assume he means by the invisible, the whole angelic host. In uh, appointing them a law after an intellectual fashion, all and each to abide in their own order. Which what Satan did not do, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I can't remember if in his book at all he deals with the fall of Satan in that way. I can't remember if he does that in the in this book. I think we're going to see that now in the next couple of chapters. Yeah, I yeah. forget. I forget. Okay, yeah. good. Okay. So, um, moving on to chapter... 19. Um, yeah, we might not get everything done. This thing, like some, it's my fault. Sorry, everybody. Um, now we move in. We've been dealing with the Trinity and the incarnation and the relationship, right? And in, in, in the way that the second century mm -hmm. folk deal with this issue before it became a real battle. Now we move into Our Lady. And it flows right from that, right from his discussion of the. That's right. The economy of the, of the Trinity, not using the term, of course. He goes on, Evidently, therefore, the coming of the Lord to his own, at which time also his own creation, bear him which is born by him. Sometimes he just throws little phrases out that are far deeper than at which time also his own creation bear him, which is born by him. I mean, there's the mystery of the incarnation. Yeah. In that little phrase, his own creation bear him, which is born by him. And there's got to be some, him making that statement because that's turning a knife at something some Gnostic said somewhere. How can his creation bear him if he's the one that's, you know, it's like, how can God die? You know, I mean, it's all these big, great mysteries that are beyond our ability to understand. And he, he, he came unto his own. Yeah. I hear that echo of John yeah. here. Yeah. And then we encountered that phrase you were talking about again. 
and the summing up which he made of the disobedience at the former tree by obedience at the present tree, and his undoing the perversion, the evil perversion of Eve, that virgin now espoused to a man. All this news was well and truly preached by the angel to the Virgin Mary, now under a husband. You pause there, Monsignor. What are we jumping into here? Um, uh, first of all, I want to just comment on um, the remarkable way that he connects the tree in the Garden of Eden with the, the tree on Calvary. Yep. That is really cool. Um, I hadn't, I really hadn't, it hadn't hit me quite like that as clearly as he does it here. So at that one tree was, disobedience on the, and the tree on Calvary was the obedience of, of, of Christ to the father. Fascinating there. But yeah, now, now we get into the whole question of the second Eve. Um, and so this, this next section is, is very important for um, the doctrine of Mary and the church. You know, once again, here we are, 21st century, and we know that in the 20th century, in the 19th century, in gospel hymns, there are many references to the cross as the tree. You know what I'm saying? You know, yeah. were, you, were you there yeah. when they when they took him from the tree? You know, you know this this emphasis of you know the crucifixion being the tree. That's right. Yeah. We, we kind of take it for granted, maybe, but but now we're seeing the source of the foundation where these ideas developed from the very beginning. It's fascinating, yeah. 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 And of course, this idea of Virgin Mary and Eve, we see this in Paul, which is mm-hmm. this whole section is a reflection on Paul, uh, as he, he told us. So he goes on, for as the former was led astray by an angel's discourse to fly from God after transgressing his word, so the latter by an angel's discourse, had the gospel preached unto her, that she might bear God, obeying his word. And if the former had disobeyed God, yet the other was persuaded to obey God, that the Virgin Mary might become an advocate for the Virgin Eve. And as mankind was brought unto death through a virgin, it is saved through a virgin. By the obedience of a virgin, the disobedience of a virgin is compensated. Uh, this is an important statement. This is an important statement, incredibly important statement. So how should we start it? <laughs> <laughs> I admit, we could go on quite a while on this one. Well, that's all right. We may not yeah. get to the chapter 20 this time, but uh, or maybe, but... I'll tell you what we'll do, because in section two, he begins a new section. Yeah. So we're going to end with this section. Okay, that sounds good. Because of the time. That sounds good. Because this is really important. So what we've got here, um, first of all, what we have here is, um, again, that um, developing the idea of just as 
Paul's argument that there is an old Adam and a new Adam. Um, now there is, there's this paralleled idea of the old Eve and the new Eve. And, and just as disobedience and obedience um, characterize the response of the old Adam and the new Adam to Christ, um, so the same disobedience, diso, disobedience and obedience motif characterizes uh, the first woman and, and the second woman, if no, you will. No, I'm going to pause there yeah. for one other thing. Again, something we take for granted. The church has always, well, from the earliest days of the church, has taught that there are there are senses of Scripture. There's a literal and there's a spiritual. And another way that Irenaeus deals with that is typology. And we kind of take it for granted but this was a big deal in the early church. In other words, something happens in the Old Testament. Well, how's that apply to me? How's it apply to the church? How's it apply to Christ? Mm -hmm. And so the connecting of things in the old, people in the old, events in the old, as foreshadows of things in the new was a huge assumption that changed everything. In the early days of the church, there were Jews that didn't like that. In fact, I was reading something, and it said the, the Jews that didn't like that eventually became something called Ebionites. Yeah. Right? We encountered those guys. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, the Jewish Christians that, that yeah. Had a real hard time with this idea of applying the old to the new and rejected the new. In fact, I think the EBO, it's like Matthew. Well, uh, that, see, that isn't exactly right, because Matthew does this all over the place. That's the point of Matthew. His first gospel written in Hebrew to the Jews was making these points over and over and over again. So I may be wrong about the connection with the Ebionites, but the point was there were people that had a hard time becoming Christians because of, of, of seeing Moses as a prototype of, of Jesus. Joshua as a prototype of Jesus, Solomon as a prototype of, you know, how do you make these connections? Mm -hmm. We take it for granted. And Marcion had a problem with that. He did. How do you have, how do you have the same God? So that's why he had to break it and come up with rejecting the Old Testament, throwing it out, throwing out anything that was too Jewish. But when when the apostles didn't quite understand why Jesus was crucified and two of them meet the resurrected Jesus walking along the way and they say how, and, and it, it, scripture says at the end of Luke, the, the very thing Jesus did was connect the old to him. And so the only reason I wanted to say that is that's a behind What's going on here? This assumption that there is a, a, a connection between Eve and Mary. There's a connection between Genesis 3 and the seed of Mary and Jesus. There's this connection, which we take for granted, but was the foundation for so much in the early church. Because, you know, they were, at the Garden of Eden, um, to put it in a, you know, 
a modern colloquialism, it takes two to tango. There, there were two sinners under the tree there. Um, and so both of them, both of them needed redeeming. And, and of course we have Paul laying out the, um, the, the, the different, uh, the first even, or first Adam and second Adam. It's, it's amazing. I, my imagination goes now into overdrive and I think about how Mary was with the apostle John could that have had something to do with how Irenaeus was taught to write about Mary? Um, did he receive this no. from Polycarp, ultimately from John, and, and from the Blessed Mother? I, I was always interested in that. Um, we, we want to pass along to those of you listening a reference back to Book 3, Chapter 22, Section four, which is the previous place that he dealt with Mary. Yeah. This is not the first time. And it it, it gets to two statements in this that are controversial to this day. Um, that became battlegrounds for bishops in the next couple hundred years. Right, I mean, and one of them mm -hmm. is this phrase. In the in the, I'm still back on four ninety uh, on forty and four section one, where he says. So the latter, by an angel's discourse, had the gospel preached under her that she might bear. God. Right now, I don't have the Greek in front of me, Monsignor. I'd love to see what's that said that she might bear God. It doesn't say that she might bear Jesus or that she might bear the Christ. It says that she might bear God. And when I hear that, I recently was listening to an audio book of the first thousand years of the church. I can't think of the author. Oh, Monsignor, I can't think of the author. It's a great... Um, Oh boy, it's a great Robert Wilkins. I think is oh Robert Wilkins, the spirit of Christian thought. But I, but but I, it might be him. But it's a it's a book called the First Thousand Years of the Church, and it's a great book. I really enjoy it. But anyway, he goes. He has a whole chapter on this, the battles over this, and how the church was split over the issue. Um, I think it was Nestorius. Is that right? Yeah. It, it, this uh -huh. issue of did she bear God? Did Mary bear God or just the Christ? And the, the, the church struggled with that for a long time. And, and it was the Eastern church that really championed the idea of Theotokos. And in other words, that she is the bearer of God, not Christotokos, the bearer of Christ. And, and why it was important for the church in the end to say she bore God. And Irenaeus just says it here without flinching. And I'm looking at the Latin. We don't have any Greek here. Oh, okay. It didn't survive, but it is Deus or Deum in Latin. So, okay. yeah. But, you know, we read through it here, but here we're looking into 175. He says it without flinching. 
Okay. Another thing he says without flinching is that the Virgin Mary might become an advocate for the Virgin Eve. So he's calling the Virgin Mary an advocate. This is a very, this is this is huge, especially for us who have come into the church from um, Protestant backgrounds that have had trouble with the idea of Mary having such an active role in in the work of salvation. But it is I I I wanted I looked up the Latin there, and it is definitely an advocate. She um, uh, she has. The, the language is basically um, the language is basically legal language um, uh, that uh, she uh, uti virgini uh, uti eve virgo Maria Pieret um, Pieret advocata. Um, she is practicing law. She's the advocate here. Uh, she's like a she's she's not the judge. I think this is really important to point. She's not the judge. She does not judge as Christ does, but she intercedes. Um, and so it's that's it's that sense of being an advocate. She's like the defense attorney in a trial. The there's first of all. There's no place from page one to page 700 or whatever it is in this book where Irenaeus ever equates Jesus with Mary. Doesn't make her a fourth person of the Trinity. Does no. not in any way downplay the centrality of God, our Lord Jesus. But... Can, I'm oh, sorry. No, no but, you go ahead, please. But... He recognizes the absolute importance of her place in salvation history. Absolutely. And it's not, you know, sometimes people will raise the question about, should we add a, a fifth Marian dogma now about Mary being, being recognized as co-redemptrix? Um, that is not the sense of advocate here. Um, I, you know, I looked at um, the titles that we have. There's the titles for the Blessed Virgin that the church um, has approved. In Lumen Gentium 62, you find advocate right here, a helper, benefactor, and mediator. But but it's so, there was a little footnote in in uh, Lumen Gentium 62 that I just, I had to chase down um, and it blew me away because uh, um, the fathers at, at the council said um, that these titles do not take anything away from the dignity and the efficaciousness of Christ, the one mediator. And then there's this tiny little footnote in the text of Vatican II that cites St. Ambrose of Milan, letter 63. Um, he's writing it to the Church of Vercelli. And I just one, I just let me, let's read this one word. 
Um, after praising Mary's virginal purity and her faithfulness to the son's mission, St. Ambrose writes, but Jesus had no need of a helper in redeeming all, for he saved all without a helper. Indeed, he received the devotion of his mother, but he did not seek another's aid. Um, that that text in Ambrose is in that's going to be one of the most significant patristic texts to overcome if this whole question about declaring Mary as co-redemptrix is ever going anywhere. Yeah, and and in some ways I don't want to push that discussion because I've been involved with it off and on ever since I came into the church because I know some people who are very active trying to push this dogma and you know it, it, it to push it in my view makes it too much and makes it a problem but it doesn't take away from the fact that we recognize our lady we don't go the other extreme and that, that's that's, right. that's where yeah. I separate brethren go for too far the other extreme they want to stay away from her they want to bring her out of the dust every christmas and then put her back away again until the next christmas and and Irenaeus, I, I had pointed out earlier, if you go to page 296, back in chapter 3, book 3, chapter 22, section um, 4, he says, um, For they were first to grow up and thereupon afterwards to be multiplied as Eve, I say, Proving disobedience became the cause of death both to herself and to all mankind. So also Mary, having a husband foreappointed and there nevertheless a virgin, being obedient, became both to herself and to all mankind the cause of salvation. Now that's a strong statement. We talked about that. How many, yeah. years, how many years ago was it when we covered that chapter? We, we you know, but Mary, he, Irenaeus calls Mary the cause of salvation. What does that take away from Christ? That's what Ambrose is saying. No, no. But in the in the Annunciation, the significance of that is that the angel comes to Mary and says, "God wants it to be through you." Yeah, yeah. And she freely could say yes or no. And she said, be it done unto me according to thy will. And So she be, she's a helper at this. That's, the helpmate, yeah. But the advocacy is, you said the legal aspect, but we also take the idea of in, in the Hail Mary, we're asking her to pray for us. That's right. I just my my image was of um, when we get to the final judgment. I want her to be my lawyer. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I, that was I. I don't know why. I, I, that's how I read Irenaeus here. Um, that she pleads the case of Eve, and um, and so she. She's certainly, um, she's certainly helping. I mean, she's an advocate, a, um, a mediator, as as the Second Vatican Council says of her. 
um, you know, I, she's pleading, pleading the case for for Eve and for her children. Yeah, I can't help but think of some uh, non-Catholic watching evangelical is going to be, you know, he's, he's fuming, wanting to say, but yeah, but what about what about you know, First John chapter, the first letter of John chapter two. My little children, I am writing this to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the expiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so someone say, well, Jesus is the advocate. And we would say, as Ambrose said, as the fathers of the Vatican Council said, amen. <laughs> but that doesn't also mean that we don't believe that we have the communion of saints, which we claim we believe in, of men and women, saints, who now as referenced in the book of Revelation, whose prayers intercede for us. That's what we believe. And Our Lady is our advocate. So if I would, I, and I'm, this may not be theologically sound exactly what I'm going to say, but I remember as a Calvinist, my particular branch of Calvinism would say, if I stood before heaven and God asked, why should I let you into my kingdom? Our answer was, we point to Jesus. Why? Because our grossness sin is covered with his righteousness. So it's all about pointing to Jesus. What you just said is, if God's, why should I let you into my kingdom? Mary is our advocate, our lawyer, who points to Jesus. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, she didn't point to herself. She points to Jesus. But she's there just as Joseph yeah. or, our, you know, the crowd of witnesses, as uh, is referred to in Hebrews 12, or Romans 12, uh, yeah, Romans 12. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling an old man moment here. but uh, Okay, let's, let's tie this up because it's, okay. it goes on. In, for the last sentence, for while the sin of the first made man is yet receiving correction by the rebuke of the firstborn, the servant's craft being overcome by the simplicity of the dove, we are freed from those chains whereby we have been bound unto death. And this sentence is not a sentence unto itself. It's the continuation of the previous argument. The context being Our Lady as the advocate who, who uh, has overturned the sin of Eve. Right, Monsignor? Yeah. Marcus, what do you make it? Well, who, the simplicity of the dove. How do you read that? <laughs> the Holy Spirit. That's the way yeah, I read that, I, So are we, is that a reference to the baptism of Jesus here? The serpent's craft being overcome by the simplicity of the dove. What I take it as, and of course, any metaphor can be pushed too far, right? So, you know, but... Yeah. What I see, it, the serpent's craft is we see Adam and Eve being given a command by God to live out the two ways. Yeah. You're either with me or you're not. And that's what he says. And well, how will we know? Don't eat that apple. Okay, whatever. No, simple, the simple of that. Then we have this 
spiritual uh, attack, the serpent. And so the serpent's craft being overcome by the simplicity of the dove. In other words, the spiritual inspiration of the Holy Spirit through grace empowers Eve, empowers the apostles, empowers all of us to respond to the craft of the serpent. So we have that, if you will, the juxtaposition of the devil. We've got to be careful here because they're not, they're not juxtaposed. The fallen angel with the third person of the Trinity. But that's why he took it. Of course, he, and that's a good point, because, and he's going to go on, you know, in, in uh, chapter 20, uh, section 2, in the, on page 496, he'll, he's speaking about the simplicity of those holy elders. So, um, yep. whereas the Gnostics are, they're, they're super intellectually proud of themselves, just like <laughs> Satan was. I mean, maybe that that maybe exactly you're exactly right about that. I love. We're going to end here, but I, yeah. I'm jumping ahead. I love this statement uh, that says, "Those then who forsake the preaching of the church impute unskillfulness to the holy elders, not considering how much worthier is a devout and untaught person than a blaspheming and shameless sophist." <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I know, statement. This is great. <laughs> All right, everybody. We're gonna we'll we'll end it there for today, um, and we'll pick up again next week with chapter. Oh, I lost my place. With chapter twenty. No, we're gonna we're gonna begin with section two of nineteen, and we're gonna deal with a section that has to do with the heretics and the need to fly to the church, the need to hold tight to the church. Monsignor, would you close us with prayer? Okay. Yes. Um. Yeah, I'll give you some, uh, close with a Marian prayer today. Okay, all right. Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To you do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To you do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this veil of tears. Turn then, most gracious advocate, your eyes of mercy toward us. And after this exile, Show to us the blessed fruit of your womb, Jesus, O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary. Pray In the name of the us. Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. Thank you, Monsignor. And thank all of you for joining us on this episode of Deep in History. We look forward to joining you again next week. Thank you.